Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, the French invaded Madagascar with the largest army yet, and captured the island's most economically critical ports, before facing a stalemate and agreeing to peace. The armies of Madagascar had preserved their nation's sovereignty, but not without great loss and some major diplomatic concessions. With his economy in shambles from the war, Malgasy Prime Minister Raini Lairifuni makes one final effort to push his country towards industrialization, while the French prepare for a climactic showdown over the fate of Madagascar. Season 4, Episode 28, The Malgasy Gold Rush The year is 1886. Between years of economic blockade, the pending payment of an indemnity to France, and the still unresolved currency crisis strapping the nation, Madagascar was on the brink of financial ruin. Foreign capital, which had driven an impressive period of growth throughout Raini Lairifuni's tenure as prime minister, had long since dried up. The French invasion had targeted foreign-owned firms in occupied territories with special malice, likely out of an intentional effort to cause foreign firms to abandon the island out of fear of further losses if another French invasion occurred. The plan worked, and foreign-owned industries were now very reluctant to invest in the island. But despite all of these losses, Madagascar remained independent. Despite French claims of holding a protectorate, this was a fiction, one unenforced in Madagascar and unrecognized by the rest of the world. American and British envoys continued to deal with and treat Madagascar as the independent kingdom that it was in reality. French officials tried to enact the protectorate into reality through diplomatic demands. The French consul often looked and tried to find a loophole to establish a precedent of protectorateship over Madagascar. For example, he often tried to demand French approval for actions that the Treaty of 1886 had not stipulated. Had Raini Lairifonye relented to these demands even once, the French consul would have created a precedent for sovereign authority on the island. However, the Malgasy prime minister repeatedly saw through the French consul's plans, and unequivocally overruled each attempted power grab. As a result, the French consul developed, strangely enough, a deeply held respect for Raini Lairifuni. When explaining to his superiors why he had not made any progress in transforming the protectorate from fiction to reality, he wrote in an 1886 letter to the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, quote, My task is laborious because I have to deal with a man of real valor. Raini Lairifuni is a man of extreme skill who, on a larger stage, would easily qualify as a genius. But while Raini Lairifuni had proven himself an adept politician once again, the Malgasy state was stuck in a desperate position regardless of his efforts. With French aggression being a now permanent and existential threat to Madagascar, and the economy on the verge of total collapse, Raini Lairifuni had to make a dangerous proposition. He would have to do something desperate in order to excite investors to get them to overcome their fears of French aggression and to begin spending capital on the island again. He had to put a new commodity on the market. Now, when the general public thinks of gold in Africa, it usually comes in relation to only a few countries, the home of the continent's largest contemporary gold mines, those being South Africa, Guinea, Sudan, and Ghana, or some of its largest historical gold mines, like in Mali or Zimbabwe. Madagascar doesn't really have a reputation as a historical center for gold extraction in the same way. This is despite the fact that the country, both then and now, hosts some pretty impressive gold deposits, especially in the interior of the eastern forests. 
These gold deposits were not exactly a secret of nature either, even in 1886. Malagasy craftsmen had long known about the island's deep gold deposits. However, their locations were kept closely guarded secrets, as gold working was an industry reserved only for specific classes of Andreana. As a result, gold jewelry in Madagascar was pretty common even by the beginning of the 19th century. Foreign observers, confused by the proliferation of gold jewelry in a country with, as far as they could tell, no gold mines, usually assumed that they were imported. Now, to be fair, some of it was imported, but a large portion of it actually came from these secret deposits. But this secrecy led to a few problems, namely that Malagasy gold mining remains small-scale, underdeveloped, unindustrialized, and a pretty insignificant portion of the island's economy. There were two main reasons for this underdevelopment and secrecy. For starters, the privilege to work with gold was an opportunity only afforded to certain Andreana subclasses. As for those without that royal background, working as a goldsmith was, in fact, strictly illegal. So the small number of goldsmiths in the country ensured that there wasn't much demand for raw gold supplies. As for international buyers, well, Madagascar was right across the water from the regions of modern Zimbabwe and Mozambique, two of the largest historical gold producers in the world. Not only were investors already satisfied with cheaply priced gold from mainland Africa, but so too were Malagasy. It was often cheaper for Malagasy goldsmiths themselves to import raw gold to turn into jewelry. And even then, it was often cheaper for Malagasy consumers to buy imported gold than that manufactured on the island. Foreign policy considerations also played a role in a more intentional underdevelopment of the gold industry. In the 1840s, Empress Rana Faluna I had actually sponsored several mineral prospecting expeditions throughout the island, and had, in the process, confirmed the existence of large gold deposits in the island's eastern forests. However, the eternally security-conscious Rana Faluna I opted to intentionally ignore the development of these deposits, out of concern that active gold mines would only tempt European armies to invade Madagascar. Now, despite the widespread prohibition and tight regulation of gold mining on the island, illegal gold mining did take place in Madagascar. These operations remained small in order to stay out of the public eye. So, through a combination of all these factors, Madagascar's gold mines remained small-scale and underdeveloped well into the 1880s. Initially, Reni Lairifuni had agreed with Rana Faluna's desire to not develop gold mining. He too saw it as too great of a risk, something that would very obviously tempt European intervention on the island. Well, that ship has kind of sailed. European intervention in Madagascar had happened despite a lack of knowledge of the gold mines. So, with desperate needs both to attract foreign capital and to rejuvenate the interest of foreign investors, Raini Lairifuni made the unprecedented decision to dramatically reverse the state's policy towards gold mining. The laws strictly regulating the gold mines were done away with, their existence was made public, and they were open for business. But while gold is a fairly tempting resource, Reni Lairifuni's plan to increase foreign investment proved slower than he had hoped. The Malagasy government offered five gold fields open to foreign contracts, but only one investor showed serious interest, a French businessman living in Tuamasina called André Souberbi. However, apart from a mining company set up by Superbi, most of Madagascar's gold fields remained unexploited even when they were open to foreign business. So, Raini Lairifuni was forced to take an even bigger risk, on top of his already risky decision to reopen the mines. With his government on the verge of collapse, 
Raini Lairifuni mobilized the Fanampuana. Now, the Prime Minister was well aware that trying to mobilize a corvée labor force at this point, at this time of instability, was an incredibly dangerous proposition. With the Malgasy army significantly weakened by their war with the French, Merina rule was becoming increasingly unenforceable. If popular resistance began to materialize into rebellions, then the state would be helpless to put them down. This made the decision to draft the Fanampuana especially dangerous, as drafting subjects, especially non-Merina subjects, into extended periods of unfree labor had always, from the beginning of the nation's history, been one of the most potent catalyzing forces of local resistance movements. Reinstituting Fanampuana was almost certain to provoke a few rebellions, and if these rebellions were successful, they could prove even more devastating by sparking more. One successful rebellion could inspire another, which could itself inspire another, which could lead to a general rebellion against Menina authority in the provinces and the total collapse of the Menina state. Again, this is an existential risk that Raini Lairifuni was well aware of, but he was simply in such desperate economic states that he had to do it anyway. The free Merina labor economy was far from sufficient to man these mines, and if the mines remained empty, the Merina economy couldn't recover. So, economic Hail Mary it is. To nobody's surprise, the labor draft did immediately provoke a series of dangerous rebellions across the island. Within just a few weeks of the proclamation of Fanampuana, Many of the forts throughout western and southern Madagascar were overrun by local rebel forces, finally able to fulfill their long-elusive goal of delivering their homelands from Merina rule. The Malgasy army had no chance of crushing these rebellions. They had expended almost the entirety of their ammunition stores in fighting the French. So instead, Raini Lairifoni focused on protecting a few points of special economic interest. Large market towns, crucial road junctures, and of course, gold mines while much of the old frontier was overrun. While that had never really been a reality, the fiction of a single kingdom controlling and unifying all of Madagascar died in the 1880s with the re-implementation of Fanampuana. Due to his concentration of Manina soldiers in the region, Madagascar's two major gold belts ready for exploitation, in the interior of the east and the interior of the northwest, remained relatively untouched by rebellion. Additionally, Raini Lairifuni finally managed to attract some foreign investors by offering not only generous gold mining contracts, but also readily available Fanampuana labor at, well, basically a free price. And finally, the offer was too good to resist. By 1889, three new foreign companies moved in, bringing in new industrial tools and mechanized supplies with them. With the encouragement of the Malagasy Prime Minister, new railroad lines were laid, connecting Tuamasina to the eastern forest mines. Finally, for the first time alleviating the chronic problem of transportation that had long plagued Madagascar's economy. Meanwhile, the majority of gold mines remained in domestic hands, and utilized Fanampuana labor to dig up and pan for nuggets at an unprecedented pace. The experiment in gold mining was generating valuable exports, and for the first time in a decade, reducing the Malagasy deficit. However, a few factors conspired to ensure that, while gold mining investment would help repair the Merina economy, that it would not be enough to serve as the economic savior of Madagascar. The largest contributing issue holding back the industry was widespread fraud and theft. Of course, this was directly linked to the reliance on corvée labor. 
Given the economic circumstances of the era, many Malagasy families were already in a horrific state during the 1880s and 90s. The French blockade during the war took its toll on working-class farmers for obvious reasons, while the decline in state control in the provinces led to difficulty with safe access to markets. As a result, it was not at all uncommon for the desperate people drafted into the Fanampuana Cruz for gold mines to secretly pocket as much gold as they could. The problem of gold theft by Fanampuana workers became so prevalent that, by 1890, about half of the gold, I repeat, half of the gold exported from Madagascar, was leaving from illegal vendors, cutting the state out of the sale and defeating the whole point of the gold mines in the first place. The government, for their own part, knew about the problems and took extreme measures to halt it. Armed guards were placed outside of every major marketplace that they still controlled, and were instructed to search the belongings of every single person trying to enter to sell to foreign merchants. Meanwhile, the criminal penalties for theft were increased substantially. Stealing from a state monopoly, such as the gold monopoly, was previously an offense punished by some years of hard labor. Now, you would receive the death penalty. In fact, according to one anecdote, even teenagers and children were subject to this punishment if they were caught stealing gold from the mines. The sheer harshness of these laws was a testament to Raini Lairifuni's desperation in this situation, and also a testament to the desperation of the workers themselves. Despite the enormous risk involved, despite the regular death penalty verdicts, gold theft continued to be a major industry for the state throughout the 1890s. To make matters worse, time was quickly running out for the Medina economy. The decline in exports following the French blockade had been slow to recover. However, Malagasy demand for imports had almost immediately returned to its pre-war status, and in the effort to rebuild damaged infrastructure, had actually increased. This led to an enormous trade deficit for Madagascar. To pay for these imports, many struggling Malagasy merchants started to take on debt from foreign companies. But by 1890, many of these companies were growing increasingly impatient on collecting these debts, and began calling them in. With nothing to pay back these debts, a sizable number of Malagasy merchants were forced to go into bankruptcy. The large number of failing merchants further exacerbated the problem, and further impeded Madagascar's ability to export products. Meanwhile, the large number of financial defaults further discouraged Western investors from sending their capital to Madagascar. And as if that wasn't bad enough news, there was, of course, one enormous dark cloud lingering over the horizon. As previous leaders had known and predicted, the exploitation of Madagascar's gold mines did encourage an increase in foreign interests in conquering the island. France, briefly cooled on the idea of colonialism by the harsh realities of colonial warfare, had warmed up again, and was once again invested in bringing Madagascar into its fold. By now, the French desire to control Madagascar was strong enough that they would do whatever it took to conquer the island even if it meant conceding other valuable claims to their main colonial rivals. Join us in our next and final episode of Season 4, as a backroom deal between the British and French heralds the end of the Marina Empire and the climactic conclusion of our fourth season. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like our show, then we would greatly appreciate if you could help support the show and our project of freely available online history education. You can do this by supporting us at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, 
providing us a rating or review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or iTunes, or by sharing the podcast with anyone who you think might enjoy learning about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayofagbamie, Dimitri, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelavie, Pascal Mokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabudike, Sheuna Laurentimain, Kwajo Mankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, Hassan Virgiani, Niti, Kitty, Tariq Beetleman, and Calvin Jayanoris, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.